Welcome to ROH Strong Podcast. Here is your host, Kevin Eck. What's up, Honor Nation? Welcome to episode 39 of the ROH Strong Podcast, the official podcast of Ring of Honor Wrestling. And my guest today is well known to ROH fans for his work in the ring. He's a former top prospect finalist, but he's also taking a more active role behind the scenes. He is Will Ferrara. Will, how are you? doing great kevin thanks a lot for having me well it's my pleasure uh let me ask you the first question which i ask a, a lot of guests is uh the bubble experience because uh everyone involved even those behind the scenes uh which you are one uh, a member of that uh had to be in the bubble uh go through all the testing what was the experience like for you uh personally i enjoyed it very much you know uh I lived by myself for most of the quarantine, so being in the hotel room was really no challenge. It was something I was used to as up this year. And uh, as far as the, the event days and the pre-tape days, I'm there all day for all four days, so it was pretty cool. It was a lot of nonstop work. It was, you know, for those four days, I forget that we're in a pandemic, and it just feels like business as usual. It's, you know, it's pretty cool. Okay, so yeah, so, so the alone time, not a, not a negative for you. Yeah, that, that stuff is easy for me. And, you know, I just like being back to work. I miss uh, the dojo. It's been closed, you know, so just being busy with Ring of Honor stuff is, is good to me. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, uh, because I, I alluded to that in the uh, intro, is that you're working a lot behind the scenes. I think sometimes people think if, if they don't see someone on TV, that, you know, where are they? Did, you know, where did Will go? Did he leave? Um, but of course, if they watched the Pure Tournament, they saw that you were, you were one of the judges, along with Sumi Sakai and Gary Juster. Uh, you guys screwed Kenny King, by the way. <laughs> well, according to Kenny and a few others. Yes. Not if he has Josh. <laughs> Josh Woods. I won't ask you to give me the breakdown of who voted who, who voted for who, but... Uh... <laughs> well, we'll just throw Gary under the bus to be safe. Okay, yeah, why not? Let's throw Gary under the bus. He... <laughs> I love Gary. Himself. Uh, so tell us, though, what you do at the dojo, when, when the dojo is actually open for operations and we're all you know, running on all cylinders. Uh, what is your role? Well, with the dojo is open, myself and uh, the current pure champion, one half of the tag champions, John Gresham, were the, the head trainers there. And, you know, we'd opened up, we locked down, and we trained with the students four days a week uh, right after we come home from the road, right before sometimes. And uh, it was great. You know, it was a, a lot like a finishing school. When the, the dojo existed in Bristol, Pennsylvania, it, it, it allowed uh, people to start up from scratch if they've never had any wrestling experience and we teach you the basics. But since the dojo moved to Baltimore, a lot of it's just been getting people ready for Ring of Honor, experienced wrestlers who've been around the world already and just fine tuning them. So I think it's a whole different skill set, a lot more attention to detail, but it's awesome. And I, it's so rewarding to me to see uh, students work, like, work on stuff and then improve and apply the critiques and then succeed at a high stage like Ring of Honor. It's 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 so great such a great feeling well absolutely i can understand how um you know you as a as a coach as a teacher how how gratifying that would be uh for you to see the uh you know sort of the lessons the instructions uh that are being taught and then and then seeing them play out you know on uh, on ring of honor television 
But I want to ask you this question, Will. I mean, you are a young guy. As, as far as I know, you, I mean, you're not even 30 years old yet, correct? That's correct. About a year shy. Okay. That's what I thought. I knew you were in your late 20s. Um, to transition into coaching at this young age, uh, was that a tough transition to go from performer to coach? Because usually, you know, that's something you might see later on in someone's career. Um, I think it had its difficulties for sure. You know, being uh, that young in the game, I guess it was hard to put myself on the back burner and my, my individual career. You know, part of me felt like super proud of everything I did in Ring of Honor, but then another part of me felt like I had a lot more left to offer and that in a certain sense I failed by living up to, by not living up to, I guess, the potential I thought that I had. However, stepping into the new role as a trainer, to me it's almost stepping back and looking at, at wrestling as a whole, you learn about all these moving parts that you never even knew existed when you're just in the lane of an individual performer. So uh, to me, that was really fascinating is just to learn how everything kind of relates to each other and like looking at shows as at a whole, instead of just worrying about what I have to do for my match and my segment, you know, I think it's really cool to just be involved at that level. A lot of people, I think as wrestlers, they never really take those steps back. So it was really rewarding to see, you know, bittersweet at times, but all in all, I think I made a good call. For sure. Um, was coaching something that you had thought about uh, maybe w one day down the line? I mean, was it something that you always had an interest in and you thought, you know, maybe one day when I'm done in ring, it's something I'll want to do, or did you not really give it any thought? Oh, I love, I love the coaching aspect. Uh, I guess when Delirious was the head trainer, uh, I started training under him after a few years of wrestling under my belt. And I just, I learned so much. He taught me about life and about wrestling and, you know, really got me ready for Ring of Honor. Myself and Cheeseburger were kind of in the trenches together. And then we've got the opportunity once he stepped aside as a trainer, uh, myself and Burger became trainers and it was almost paying it forward, you know, like, I, I honestly feel like I would not be at the stage that I am at all if it wasn't for the great trainers that I've had along the way. So really, it's just like to pay it forward. I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to find a way to, to, give, to the, give back to the next generation, you know, keep the ball rolling as a whole, as an industry. And uh, I guess I didn't expect to transition as a trainer so soon, but I always had it on my uh, landscape. You know, it was something I always wanted to do. Okay, so you were, you were going to go down that path at some point one where it just happened maybe sooner than, than later. Yeah. Like as far as I'm concerned, I would want something uh, in wrestling for the rest of my life. I love wrestling. It piques my interest all the time. And uh, I love helping people out in wrestling the same way that I was helped. Is it difficult to, or especially at first, when you first made that transition to not being an active full-time member of the roster to then being a guy who worked behind the scenes as a coach and, and in creative, was it difficult to sit back backstage and watch the guys and girls go out there and perform? And especially for something like the pure tournament, which I think would be, you know, something that would be right up your alley for you to participate in something like that. Uh, was it hard? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, I think it's hard sometimes. When, uh, when I think to myself, like, ah, I could be doing that out there as well and thinking that, oh, well, I've learned so much since I stepped away from being an active competitor that it's almost exciting to think, like, oh, I wonder how different I'd be now to apply all this stuff. But, however, I don't think that um, 
it feels bad because at the same time, I feel really good for the people that are in the ring. You know, like someone like John Gresham, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. I've had conversations with him and I've seen him talk, literally talk the pure championship back into existence. Mm-hmm. And to see him go out there and have the matches that he did, him holding that title at the end, you know, that like is an emotional moment for me just watching him experience it. And, you know, like that's something completely different, a uh, different feeling that I get than if I was in there myself. And it's like, I love seeing these stories happen. And, and uh, I love like watching people's hard work get paid off. Guys like Wheeler Yuta, who I've seen uh, on the road a bunch. And, you know, I've trained with him a few times at Burgers. And now seeing him in a, a tournament like that, I know that if I was in there, maybe someone like him wouldn't get this opportunity. So, you know, I would encourage him to get that opportunity and make the most of it. Because at the end of the day, I have a job in Ring of Honor and I get to be very fortunate that I pay my bills through wrestling where, you know, I don't have to even take a bump to do that right now. (laughs) Where some of these guys, you know, like this is a big chance for them. So like, you know, to me, it it doesn't hurt at all to give these people an opportunity to, to make some money and to wrestle, you know, and get that experience. I've had these experiences. I would love to have some more, but not at the expense of any of these like hungry and well-developed talents that just need a shot. I love that you said it doesn't hurt at all to let them have the shot. Um, and you, you could take that two ways. <laughs> like you said, you don't have to take the bumps anymore. So uh, yeah, your body I'm sure is feeling a lot better than it did uh, a year or so ago. Oh, that is very true. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, if I had to ask, what do you think you bring to the table as a coach? Like what do you see uh, as maybe your strengths or what you have, to impart to students? Good question. Um, I feel like I, I could see how the talent are perceived based on what they bring to the table. I think as a talent, like individual talent, sometimes it's hard to look at yourself through the third person, you know, because every, everyone takes things very personally at times, especially in the business of wrestling. You know, it's, it's a lot to put yourself out there in the way that wrestlers do and you get in your own head. So I like to just be grounded and I like to – trim the fat, sort of say, when people bring things to the table. It's like, hey, you might not need to do all of that to accentuate the things that really make you unique. You know, I think a lot of us at wrestlers, it's overwhelming. So we bring just like everything to the table. I can do all these moves and I can do a little comedy, a little strength. But I think attention to detail and really just making each thing matter is such like an art and the art that I love passing down. And like, if everyone necessarily everyone doesn't have to be the the best wrestler in the world they just have to be the best version of themselves and they got to understand themselves and i i think that's kind of what i bring to the table is just helping people get to that level and helping people understand themselves trying against the wall and really see what clicks we saw a match recently a few weeks ago on uh, ring of honor tv which was a, a dojo showcase match tag team match we saw joe keys and dante caballero uh, work with uh, Ken Dixon and Eric Martin. And it was striking in a sense because we saw all four guys out there in black tights. And we did, you know, plain black tights. We didn't see, uh, you know, each one of these guys kind of had a distinctive look or persona. I don't think Eric Martin had been on TV before, but certainly with the other guys, we had seen them. They had a certain look, certain persona, as I said. But this, they were really stripped down to. Uh, it was it was very reminiscent of, and I, I guess it was a takeoff of the New Japan Young Lions system, which is where you just like we talked about, you come out there in black tights and 
you're very um, nondescript and you kind of have to earn that right to one day be given a personality and be given a chance to become more of an individual. Whose idea was that to sort of adopt? Was that Gresham's idea to kind of adopt that new Japan system? Yeah, you know, I think Gresham brought it to the table and together we developed it into what it is, but it was inspired by the Young young Lions system, of course. And, you know, we've had uh, Young Lions come come on excursion to Ring of Honor from New Japan and, like, be in the locker room and just get those matches under their belt. And so many times, whether it was Evil, whether it was Jay White, whether it was Tempora Boys who became Rapungi 3K, you know, there's so many people that there was a true method and it worked, you know. So we looked at it and we said, hey, it works so well. I think we can make it work here for us as, uh, too. And, you know, we even um, – we had a few shows lined up in the beginning of the year. We went to Chicago, Pittsburgh, where we're giving these students matches and build as young lions. And, you know, pandemic kind of pushed it down to the side a little bit, given the climate of wrestling. But I really think that all four of those guys, uh, Martin, Dixon – Dante and Joe, they wrestled on TV. That was probably the best they've ever looked as wrestlers and that the tightest and crisp they've ever looked, you know. And I think that a lot has to do with the system and just the work that they put into the system and them trusting us with this vision and, you know, going going for it. You know, I think it's hard for them to, to have a developed uh, gimmick that they proved to be successful on the indies that got them here to Ring of Honor and then hear us say, hey, Maybe just don't do that and now start from scratch again. I'm sure it's frustrating and it's, it's hard, but I thought all four of them did an excellent job. And they're four wrestling machines, four, four pro wrestlers that I'm very proud of. Well, I was going to ask you about that is, is when you presented this idea to them, what their initial reaction was. Because like you said, they, you, know, you work hard on finding out who you are and developing a persona and trying to get it over. And all, all those guys did that, uh, like you said, on the indies, uh, specifically Maryland Championship Wrestling. I watched these guys, uh, several of them, from when they first came in the door at Maryland Championship Wrestling. So I, I saw them, uh, you know, come in totally green and as, as trainees at that level and then develop, again, these, these personas for themselves. So you said they've embraced it. What was, was the initial reaction one of um, – I mean, did they embrace the idea right away? Did they have to be kind of talked into it? Were they were they skeptical? What was what was that first reaction like? I think there they might have been a little trepidatious about uh, going all in for that, but I also think that they were just so hungry for opportunity that they just do whatever it takes at this point. You know, these guys, uh, especially Dixon, Dante, Joe, they were in the dojo when it first opened up, and you know, we've had graduating classes: SOS, Dak Draper, Brian Johnson, Quinn McKay. Sledge, Maria Manic, people that like, you know, Amy Rose, people that have come uh, after them and then got called up before them. So I know that that's not an easy thing to, you know, wrestling, everyone has their own story. So I don't think they feel any bitter towards these people, but they just want the same thing. So I think when we brought to them, like, hey, we have this idea for you guys, and if they looked at it as an opportunity to get to where they want, then they took it because that's, that's what, at the end of the day, that's what we all work for is for that opportunity. So I think it might not have been the one that they pictured for themselves, but the fact that it was created for them with just all intents and purposes for them to succeed is like, all right, this is, this is our ticket. This is our chance. And they've been really knocking it out of the park so far. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, exactly what you said of, you know, this was probably the best they've ever looked. 
And not that they weren't, you know, competent and, and good in the ring before, but that tag match, it, it did seem like four different guys in there than what we were used to seeing. And, um, you know, it wasn't just the, the nondescript look in the black tights. It was they were wrestling. They were performing differently than I had ever seen them before. And it was exactly the words you used. It was crisper. Uh, everything just flowed better. Um, and then even, you know, the guys got a chance to speak, you know, which obviously, as you know, that's huge in this business is getting mic time, getting a chance to talk, tell your story. And I thought all four of them did really well with that, too. How much of that is emphasized at the dojo as far as not just the in-ring, but um, speaking, which is obviously very important? Uh, extremely important. I think uh, I always try to uh, enforce that intention. It needs to be clear when you're a wrestler. You know, if, you're, if the fans are watching, they need to know, like, why you're doing the things that you're doing, why you're fighting, you know, what, what this means to you. And, like, we, we translate that information through promos, through these interviews. And, like, I really got to give credit to Zane Decker. He's one of our uh, production guys. He, he does a lot of these BTRs before the match. He sit down interviews. And it's, like, it's great because now each match means something. And we get to hear from these people where I think if, you know, a traditional, let's say, 30-second bumper of someone just cutting a wrestling promo, you know, we've seen it so many times where sometimes it's just, it's like dead air where, like, you know, you could see it, but you don't really listen to it because it's just been done so many times. But here, these, these sit-down interviews, it's just, like, legit. You know, we were just hearing straight from the heart, and we're showing with the visual example. So, like, within under two minutes, you know about these guys. You know their intentions. And I, I think, you know, uh, if people are able to, to just show their intentions through the match, through these promos, everything is so much easier for the fans to understand and therefore enjoy, you know? For sure. Uh, I want to ask you one other aspect of, of what you do, which is I know that you were booking the Future of Honor shows when we were running Future of Honor shows, and hopefully we will be again at some point. Um, tell me about that, where you're basically, I know you, you worked with some other people behind the scenes, but largely it fell on your shoulders. You were responsible for booking these shows as far as putting the matches together, the fin I'm assuming the finishes, everything. Um, tell me about that responsibility and what that was like. Huh. I was really cool. You know, like once again, I, when I talked about taking that step back, it's like never did I have to write out a show before and time each match and then produce the formats and make sure that, you know, the music and the videos, sometimes I had to edit some of the videos myself and it's like, it was overwhelming, but it was really cool. And, you know, I think uh, being that I know most of the, if not everyone on the card are people that I've trained with at the dojo or at MCW. And it's like, I know their strengths, I know their weaknesses. And it was a good challenge for me to try to structure something where everyone was in a position to, to look their best. Because I know that, you know, they were, they were future of honor shows. So obviously it's, to be entertaining is like, you know, the number one goal. But then behind that, it's just I wanted everyone to have that fair shot to show what they could do to the powers that be and also just have the fair shot to practice. It's experience. You know, Future of Honor is uh, the step below Ring of Honor. So, you know, I just want them to get reps. I just wanted everyone to go out there and put what they've been working on and put it into practice, see how it works, see how you can make it better. And uh, it was great. You know, it was challenging at times dealing with a roster of people that want different things. So sometimes, you know, not everyone's going to be happy, but you know, you learn that that's wrestling. Not everyone's going to be happy all the time, but you know, as long as you try to do what's right, you know, try to do what's fair and 
look at it as the big picture, not get too hung up on little things because they change so often anyway that, you know, it was really kind of good for me to go through that and realize like, oh, okay. It's like not everything's the end of the world when even though it feels like it at crunch time, you know, it's yeah. going to be. Well, I, I'm always interested in, in uh, you know, creative process and how people uh, book things. It, were you looking at, again, when we were doing the shows regularly, were you planning out one or two shows, three shows at a time? Were you looking at it like that? Like, we're going to start this tonight, and then in, because in three shows, you know, we want to pay it off with this. Or was it mainly a, a show-to-show thing? Like, what was your philosophy on that as far as long-term versus, uh, you know, one, one show to the next? Well, if, if, if it was like Ring of Honor, uh, a, a show or platform with a large audience and like, you know, uh, things like pay-per-views to build to, I'm always, I think that long-term booking and booking backwards would be the way to go. Like, if it was me, I'd, I'd think, all right, what are we doing for Final Battle? Let's work backwards six months and then plant all the seeds, let it, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of like slow build and paying things off. But as far as the Future of Honor shows, it was kind of a little blend. Like, I looked at it, there were stories I wanted to tell but more so, I just wanted to put the students in different positions. If I, let's say, uh, if I thought that someone really needed to work on their selling and work on, like, you know, their comeback, I put them in a position where they'd have to be an underdog and fight through something and give them that chance to practice what they need to practice. So sometimes that might not be the, the best story overall, but I was looking at it as this, the main goal of Future of Honor was for the students to learn and get better. You know, I want to make it entertaining as possible, but it was very much just individual needs and then trying to fulfill all those needs so that everyone that went on a show, they could leave and thinking like, okay, I did something and I learned something today. I'm better than I was yesterday. Right. Right. That's a, that's a great point is that it wasn't just, let me try to make the most entertaining show and most entertaining storylines. Obviously you want that because we do have an audience uh, you know, we had a live audience, plus the shows were available on Honor Club. So certainly you want to entertain people that are watching. But yeah, you, it's a great point that you had that dual role of, at the, at the end of the day, this is to also teach and to, make the, to get reps and to make the people, the performers better. And if they need to work on something, let's make it so that they can do that. But at the same time, you're balancing, okay, let's also put on an entertaining show, which is, again, that's not what a lot of, if you're booking a Ring of Honor show or any major company, uh, you don't necessarily have to think about those things. You're just putting out the best show. Whereas, as, as you said, you had kind of two things to, to keep in your head as you're, as you're laying everything out. Yeah, and that, you know, that was cool. Uh, I definitely miss the Future of Honor shows. I know uh, Dean and uh, RJ, rest in peace, uh, helped me so much with putting those shows together and just the operation uh, at running them at MCW, you know, it, they've been tremendous help. And like, I missed that part. And I just know that whenever we do get to uh, have future of honor shows again, I'll be more than excited to get back at it. Yeah, man, I can't wait either. I, you know, I was lucky enough. You gave me an opportunity to do some commentary for the future of honor shows. And uh, that, that was a lot of fun. And uh, man, I certainly do miss, I, I miss everything, man. I miss those shows. I miss our shows. Uh, hopefully, let's all cross our fingers that in 2021, we can get back to that normalcy, uh, at least on, on some level. I agree. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Will Ferrara right after this. Experience the show that's thrilling critics and fans. ROH TV. 
the reviews are in. It's completely different than anything in pro wrestling. I enjoyed every minute of this show. ROH TV delivers. Valiant Saint Raves, take my money. This was awesome. Join the ROH stars for the hashtag WatchROH Watch Party every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. All right, we are back on the ROH Strong Podcast. My guest is Will Ferrara. You know him as, uh, well, he's been Little Willie. He's, uh, he's also been uh, just Will Ferrara. We've seen top prospect tournament finalist. Uh, and as we've talked about, he also now has a role behind the scenes as a coach at the ROH Dojo and uh, the head booker at the Future of Honor shows. How does that sound? Head booker, Will Ferrara. I like the way that sounds. And my yeah. back likes the way that sounds, too. Yeah. <laughs> You've got the pencil, my man. You, you got some power. Hey, you know, no shows right now. So it's, you know, power put to use later. That's I'll take it. I wanted to ask you specifically about um, some of the females at the, uh, at the dojo, because I- I'm assuming with like a lot of wrestling schools, we've got more guys than girls. Is that, is that fair to say? That is fair to say. What is the approach with that? Is it, um, and I'm just, I don't know the answer to this. I'm really asking, is it, do you tend to have the girls that are there uh, sort of pair off and work with each other? Or do you have them get in there and mix it up with the guys? A uh, little bit of both. Like for me, it's, uh, I think if everyone just trains together, it's cool. I'm, I'm doing that. Like, you know, uh, I'm all about that. I don't treat anyone different gender or anything. Like, you know, I'll teach you wrestling and I'll teach you it the best I can. Uh, but I think there's reasons to do both. Like, I think just have everyone be comfortable working with each other is important. But then sometimes it's like, uh, let's say most of the time the girls are a lot smaller than the guys. So if uh, a girl's working with a guy and he could be the base and just essentially throw her through certain things, it's easier. But then if they get in the ring and it's just two girls by themselves and they never tried it with someone that's not as strong, it might not come off as well. So I think it's important that they need to do both. Like, you know, whatever you do, no matter who you're doing it against, I think it needs to look as best as possible and it has to be as safe as possible. So I'm a fan of both. You know, I think there's a lot more times uh, now when females are wrestling each other and males are wrestling each other, but that's not uh, necessarily going to always be the case. That can change very soon. It's, you know, there are intergender matches. That's a very big part of our industry now. So, you know, I just want them to be ready and able to do both. You mentioned that the dojo is a place where it's, it's not really a, a place where people come uh, from and start from scratch necessarily. We, we're, you get, we're getting people that have had experience um, on the indies. You hear a lot of times certain uh, trainers will say that they have to break bad habits that people had learned um, on the indies or wherever they got their training beforehand. Is that something as a trainer that you've seen where you have to sort of reteach people maybe something that they've learned previously? Oh, a bunch of times. And like, there's things like technique and footwork, which like, you know, it's simple fixes to make things smoother. But one thing I learned as a trainer is that there's more than one right way to do things. So just because someone does something differently, that doesn't mean that I necessarily have to correct them on it. But I think it's uh, being aware enough to understand like what would be a deck. Like if something is dangerous, I would try to fix that. That's something to me that's urgently, I got to take care of that. But if it's just not the way I would do it, but it gets the job done just as or even more effectively than all the power to you. You know, I think 
that's the beauty of wrestling. It's an art. So there's, there's a lot of ways you could get something done. I just try to make sure that uh, people are using the most effective ways. Like I, they have that uh, saying in wrestling, well, less is more. I always think it's the opposite. Getting the most out of the least is what I'm truly impressed with in wrestling. Oh, that's, that's a great way to put it. I, 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 I like that philosophy. Yeah. Because you do hear that all the time. Less is more, but yeah. Get, get the most from the least, I, I, which I guess is sort of less is more in a way. It's a different spin on it, but yeah. yeah like I don't think to do, to do less just for the sake of doing less, I don't really see. But if you're looking like, oh, I'm, I want to garner this certain reaction or I want people to understand this story. So I need to get over these points. If you could get those same points and those same like, you know, um, emotional attachments through people by not doing as much, I think that's more impressive. Like, you know, it saves, it saves your bump card and it just saves like, you know, the proper build to things. If everything was so over the top and big, then nothing is over the top and big, you know, like pure rules in the pure tournament made a punch matter again, a single punch where, you know, if you see multiple, you know, slug fest every match, now that punch, the values diminish. So it's, it's, I think it's a hard balance to do, especially this day and age in wrestling, but, when someone could make something small mean a lot, then they could capitalize on it by doing something big. Ah, to me, that's, that's the art right there. Yeah, I think you really hit on something there. You know, I think of a great example recently. Uh, it was Rhett Titus's match against Delirious. And, you know, your old partner, Rhett, he won the match with a drop kick. And I'm old enough for, to remember. I'm, I'm an old guy, Will. So I'm old enough to remember when people actually did win matches with drop kicks. Um, you know, and then, you know, then of course it became such a transitional move. I also remember when a DDT was the most devastating move in professional wrestling. And man, once that was hit, you were done. Um, and now like a DDT on the floor doesn't even put somebody down. So you yeah, see you this know. evolution of, of things to where it's like, man, you know, wrestling fans have sort of been conditioned now to all these false finishes kicking out of finishers multiple times. Um, it really is almost difficult, I would think, to re-educate the audience that you can win with a drop kick and that these things do mean something. But I think the Pure Tournament really, really was a big step in that direction of uh, let's make everything mean something. And yes, a perfect drop kick right to the, you know, the button of the chin can put somebody down for a three count. And, and you make, again, a great point that it, it, it saves people's bodies as well, that, you know, they don't have to go through a, a million high-impact moves to put them down. Those are exciting matches for sure, but it's gotten to a point where I don't think it could go any further that maybe it is time to take a step back, rethink, re-educate. Exactly. I think that's a perfect word choice you say is re-educate. Like, you know, John Gresham won matches in the Pure Tournament with a sunset flip. Right. You know, which is exactly. And that's a you just have to re-educate people and show them that, hey, this is a viable finish. It could win a match. And that's all they need. It's evidence right there. And I think like it's brave for wrestlers to like, let's say, Rhett, to use the drop kick as a finish, because there's a lot of people that would shrug it off. Like, drop kick. That's not a finish. But no, anything could be a finish if you make it a finish and if you build to it accordingly. So like to me, that's more impressive than like, you know, super duper destroyer from the top that yeah. I know for a fact, someone can't do four nights out of the week and be all right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. 
I want to talk a little bit about um, your background and uh, and how you got into the business. Uh, what age did you become a fan? A fan? I, I became maybe like eight or nine years old. It was a uh, year two thousand, so I kind of missed a majority of the Attitude Era. I missed a lot of the Monday Night Wars stuff. My parents uh, didn't let me watch it for a little while, but then after pleading and pleading and pleading, I finally convinced them to to let me watch. And you're from the New York area, correct? Correct. Okay. What parts? Uh, I was at Queens, New York most of my life. I lived on the, the same street, two different houses, twice each. It was weird. Like my parents were together, got divorced, lived with my mom, then moved back to the first house with my dad, then wound up moving back to that other place with my dad after the uh, landlord sold the house. It was a crazy story, but most of my life uh, upbringing, I was in Queens. Okay. Now, were you uh, strictly, again, at eight, nine, ten years old, were you strictly a uh, WWE fan, or were you aware of Ring of Honor? See, I wasn't aware of Ring of Honor at first. I was a big WWE fan. You know, I found out about SmackDown through, like, games, through playing with my friends uh, in school, and then just, like, I was engulfed by it. I, know, I was just, like, I'd watch every Raw, I'd watch every SmackDown. I think it was, like, Velocity Heat at the time, or Metal, whatever they had. Like, I would look through the TV guide, whatever they had, I'd try to watch. And in my in my world, there was only WWF. I had no idea that there was this, all these indies and Japanese pro wrestling, lucha, all this stuff. I was just uh, in the WWF bubble at the time. So is it true, I did a little research on you, is it true that you started training at 15 years old? Yes. Technically, it was 14. Um, I had my first match the day after I turned 15. Um, it was through Johnny Rods, uh, Brooklyn, New York, at Gleason's Gym. I think it was, there was an article in Raw or SmackDown, I think it was Raw Magazine about Matt Stryker, uh, the teacher Matt Stryker, because I think he was a, a teacher at Newtown High School, which is in Queens, uh, not far from where I live. And there was a write-up how talked about how he used sick days to wrestle in Japan, and it turned out he trained at Brooklyn and Gleason's gym. So being a kid in Queens, I'm, I Googled Gleason's gym and I found the info right away and wound up going there with my mom and Johnny Rods, as long as my mom signed off, allowed me to start training. So I was in high school. I would pack my school bag with my wrestling shoes and knee pads. And after I got done with school, I would take the train to Brooklyn so I could train three nights a week. Wow. And so your mom was cool with you at 14, 15 following this dream of being a pro wrestler yeah like i i honestly believe she thought i was going to grow out of it so yeah. it was almost like all right let him get this out of his system quick and then so we can go to college and do all that stuff but little she had no idea that it would just be a, like a snowball effect it would only get bigger and bigger as i got older so who did you train with was it uh was it was johnny rods actually hands-on or who who trained you so he wasn't uh as hands-on at the time, a lot of it he spent in the office and essentially his students trained me, which a lot of it were the physical parts of wrestling, how to bump. There are things that you don't see taught at other schools nowadays, like the side bump and things like that. It's very old school. Yeah. And a lot of it was just the, the technique and the physical parts of wrestling. I didn't really get psychology explained to me till years later, learning on the job through Taz when I got the opportunity to train at his school. But Physically, all I got my ass beat. <laughs> I'm sorry for saying that. I, I got beat so many times uh, as a kid because they just no one took me seriously. They're like, "Oh, what's this kid doing? Uh, well, let's just like you know try to hurt him and blow him up, and eventually he'll just stop coming." But I didn't, and it kind of helped build this uh, 
foundation under me, you know, just going through it at such a young age that it's muscle memory by the time I'm in my early 20s where a lot of people begin to start learning how to wrestle. So I'm guessing you were the youngest guy there, right? I mean, there was no one else your age or, or was there? Oh, no, there was a, a kid maybe two years older than me. So he was 16 when I was 14. But I was the youngest for, for many years, wherever I'd go. I'm sure. And, and you're not the biggest guy in the world. I mean, were there bigger, like, did you feel like you were, um, I don't know, did, because you were the youngest and I don't know, again, I don't know the size of the other guys, but did you feel like they were taking advantage of you? Like you said, maybe because they wanted you to quit? Uh, you know, I think it depends on the person. I don't think everyone took advantage. I mean, I think some people took advantage, just took liberties just because they can, you know, right. especially when you're on the entry levels of pro wrestling, it's very hit or miss where the school you start training as sometimes it's people that are reputable and you'll learn the right way. And a lot of times it's not. And it's just people that don't know what they're doing that open up a school. And now like, you know, here they are. So, uh, I, I got to mix of different people, you know, through the students there. There are those that, like, you know, really stuck with me, but some that took liberties. But I think it was important because even uh, learning how to protect yourself against those people at such a young age is an important skill set. Learning how to just, you know, tuck your chin and how to protect your face and, like, know that not everyone's going to do it the right way. But as long as you're able to, like, you know, have their guard up and protect yourself amongst this. It's important. It keeps, you know, keeps your career going. Had you been involved in contact sports at all before that? I mean, did you play football or uh, amateur wrestling, anything like that before you started training? I did a little amateur wrestling, similar to, uh, I guess when you interviewed Jeff Cobb, where it's like, I showed up amateur wrestling thinking that, Oh, the ring's going to be here. Okay. Uh, what the hell is this Matt doing here? You know, like I'm thinking before I signed up for the amateur wrestling team, like, oh, I wonder what song I get to pick for my entrance theme. This is going to be cool. But like, I, I had no idea how different it was. And, uh, you know, it was a good little step, but I, I wish I would have stuck with it uh, a little more, to be honest. I, I did um, amateur wrestling my freshman year of high school for the winter season. And by the time the spring semester began is when I started training for pro wrestling. So when I was a sophomore, I didn't want to do amateur wrestling and pro wrestling at the same time. It was just too much uh, training, you know, teaching you different things. I just stuck with the pro wrestling from that point forward. So at 14, 15 years old, you decide, again, this is what you really want to do. Uh, but you walk in, the youngest guy there, um, and, and as you said, the idea is to see how tough you are. See if you'll come back. Will they, you know, try to blow you up? Um, was there ever a moment, maybe that first day or that second day, where you were like, wow, I don't, I don't know if I can continue to do this? Did you ever think about quitting? Uh, I think it was very good that I started as young as I did because my excitement was too high. And I'd never even, like, just the fact that I was in a ring made the pain kind of go away, you know, of like, it was hurt, it was hard, but it was just like so cool for me to be like, yeah, I'm a wrestler now. I'm learning how to wrestle. This is cool. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna be main event at WrestleMania. You know, my uh, little 14-year-old thinking that, oh, by the time I'm 18, this is going to be easy. Like, you know, I was the right, I guess, right amount of stupid where I just kind of, it was fun. And I didn't think about all the, the bad stuff because I was just so happy to be doing it. Right. Did you, did you notice that you, it was something that you had an aptitude for, uh, like, early on? Like, um, is it something that you picked up? quickly and you thought, all right, this is something that I can do? Um, or, or was it uh, harder than you, than you thought it would be? Um, it was a lot harder. I think 
at the time, you know any better. So I thought I was doing great. And it would always be that like big fish in a small pond. Like, okay, at this one school among these same guys that I've been training with for, you know, the past two years, I might seem really good. But then the second I go somewhere, it's the next step up where people are traveling to go. And these are like, you know, seasoned wrestlers. I was like, whoa, I got a lot left to learn. You know, I think uh, my first Ring of Honor tryout was actually that experience in a nutshell on a weekend where I thought walking in that weekend, I'm like, I'm ready to go. They'll sign me tomorrow and I'll, I'll be champion in a few months. Like, I'm so great. And then after those two days, I was just like, wow, I don't know anything. And I need to like learn again. I need to learn like I did this weekend all the time because I have a lot more left, to, you know, left to do. Sure. It was a humbling experience. And I think like every few years or every time I really I stepped out of that comfort zone, I had that humbling experience. Every time I thought I was good, it's like, oh no, you, you got a lot more to learn. You, you don't you're like, you ain't nothing yet. You mentioned that you did some training with Taz. Uh, now, was he hands on as a trainer? Yeah, Taz was great. Like, um, it was almost like a, a reality check that I needed at the time because prior to Taz, the, the guys I was training with were like very. Uh, I guess just guys that from the school that never really branched out. Like Johnny Rodgers was the Hall of Famer, but he never was in the ring teaching us. That was his students. But hearing from Taz, it's someone that's been there and done it and is actually speaking from experience. And uh, the way that he harped on intensity and the psychology, like essentially uh, the matches that I had before the Taz Dojo, any psychology that I had were just luck. We're just like doing what I saw and it so happened to make sense. But then when Taz would ask you and explain it to you, it was like, oh, this is psychology. This is important. I was not taking this into consideration, you know? Uh, and also just treating wrestling like a business. You know, I was a kid when I was uh, training with Taz, I was maybe 19, 18 years old. And I didn't really look at wrestling like, you know, as what I was doing for my career. It was like a hobby that I had, was, had the luxury to do. But if I wanted to make a career, I had to look at it a different way. I had to be a professional athlete. I had to be a professional person just dealing with people you know I didn't have to I just always uh, act like the kid that I was I kind of had to grow up fast through Taz and I thought that was well needed because if I never had that who knows if I'd still be you know screwing around on the same indies that I was at when I was 15. Yeah that that's a great point because it is um, you know you guys are all independent contractors in a sense and, and especially when you're on the indies um, you're in charge of, you know, you're, you're the commodity and you, you have to take charge. You have to uh, get yourself indie dates and, uh, and negotiate your price and do all these things and then learn how to act behind the scenes. Uh, you know, there's an etiquette. And like you said, being a professional, that is as much a part of it as the in-ring stuff. Yeah. And like, it was really cool to, to learn from Taz. It was short. It was like uh, maybe six to, to nine weeks. It was uh, every day or one day a week. Uh, maybe one week out of those, it would be a full week because they're their travelers class, but it was cool. And it kind of got like uh, the bug in me to learn from experienced people. I'm like, okay, if I learn from Taz, I need to go to more seminars. I need to go to more places where these wrestlers are so I can keep learning from them. And it was, it kind of set that ball into motion for me. Is that how you ended up uh, getting on the ring of honor radar? Was it, was it a seminar that, that you attended? Mm -hmm. It was a, uh, August 2012, I believe, I did my first camp. And I remember I did it by myself. I had like a few guys that I'd always travel with, uh, like from my local indie, from my area, that we'd do shows together. And then when this opportunity came, I tried to, hey guys, Ring of Honor's having a tryout. It's a 
it's a small price, but you know, I think it's worth it to get on the radar to learn and no one wanted to do it. And I remember I almost didn't sign up because it was like, I can't do this by myself, but uh, I, I did it anyway. And I'm so glad that I did. Uh, it was really humbling. And then after that first uh, camp, I just knew that, all right, I need to make myself as available and as around this place as much as I can. So after I think they'd had a return camp in December that same year. And after that, I just, I looked at their ring of honor event schedule and I just wrote it in my calendar and anything that I could physically drive to, I would just do it because I said, I just need to be around any show that I'm around. Even if I just show up and help out and do crew worst case scenario, I'll learn something watching the show. Best case scenario, I'll, I'll turn some heads because people will see that I'm working hard. So no matter what, it was a step in the right direction. It was a step getting to Ring of Honor. All right. That's a good stopping point for us right there. We'll take our next break and then uh, we'll pick up uh, with where, where we left off right after the break where we'll talk about your uh, early experiences in Ring of Honor, dark matches and such. Uh, we'll be back with more with Will Ferrara right after this. I'm Quinn McKay, the host of Ring of Honor's weekly YouTube show, Week by Week. Join me every Tuesday for brand new episodes as we catch up on all of the groundbreaking ROH news and get exclusive comments from some of your favorite ROH stars. We also have some great weekly segments like Question of the Week, This Day in History, and Brian Zane's Top 5. Join me every Tuesday at 1 p.m. on social media and youtube.com slash ring of honor for Week by Week. All right, we are back on the ROH Strong Podcast. My guest is Will Ferrara, the uh, you know him, 2015 Top Prospect Tournament finalist, uh, former member of the Dogs, Little Willie, and of course he is uh, one of the trainers at the ROH Dojo. Uh, we left off with talking about um, you know you showing up at some events and uh, really trying to get in front of some people, pay your dues, work some dark matches. You did that. One of your dark matches was against a guy named the Romantic Touch. Do you have any <laughs> memories of that match? Oh, I do. That was a uh, that was actually the first dark match of or first Ring of Honor in general match that I've had that I could watch back. All the other matches that I've had or the darks up to that point were just like you know, uh, Cheeseburger might have filmed them from the crowd in his iPad, and that's how I got to see them. So just like. Watching that match back was the first time I got to see myself through the Ring of Honor lens and with the lower third and hear commentary talk about me. So it was it was cool as a first, but if I watch it back, oh, I hate that match so much now. Watching it back, just because there's so many things I would do better. <laughs> and it's, you know, for my uh, theory that romantic touch is Rhett Titus uh, and just knowing that the relationship that we would evolve to have of him just busting my chops all the time, it's just like, Oh, this is perfect. This is the, the match where he just does that. <laughs> but yeah, well, it was cool. Yeah, I was gonna say because um, you know, obviously we're not telling any tales here out of school. Uh, you know, Rhett talked about being the romantic touch when he was on uh, <laughs> a few weeks ago. Um, Rhett, obviously, at that point, this was twenty, I don't know, thirteen or fourteen. Obviously, Rhett was a, was a veteran, been around Ring of Honor forever. Um, did did what was it like just working with him? I mean, did he kind of take you under his wing and say, "Just follow my lead, kid"? Or uh, what was it? What was it like as far as the uh, the process of of working with him? I think uh, a lot of just 
learning how Ring of Honor operates and like, you know, being overwhelmed with at the time doing ring crew and driving the trucks and doing all this stuff and still making time to like work out on the road and be good to go. If you get a, a match that night, like I based myself and that mindset off the rep of just like, you know, doing as much work as you can and always being ready to go. And uh, in the ring, I think we like, particularly when he was romantic touch, he was also kind of, doing things that he'd never done before. So he was uh, not relying on what like worked, what he knew worked for him. He was trying all his new character stuff. Like I think if you watch back, which I don't know why many, any, uh, many people would, but watch back that first romantic touch Will Ferrara match, how quiet romantic touch was. I don't think he said a single word. And later on the run, you could see the personality starting to come out. So I think that's just like, uh, we both are kind of getting reps at that point. He being a grizzled, person getting reps as a new character and me just getting reps on this stage was like uh it was cool we've had a few matches uh as touch and will ferrara and been in some four ways and stuff so it was definitely learning on the feet i remember learning to wait for a crowd and learning like little things because i've never worked with that big of an audience before you know learning how to hey you got to be cool if you're just out there oh my god oh my god this is crazy and you're you're, you're so nervous you wear yourself out you got to be in control you got to be calm cool collected and just do what you know how to do and i think those matches kind of helped me find my confidence find that like you know it's all going to be okay if Rush was here to say tranquilo that's right <laughs> so a couple years later I guess it's, uh, yeah, it's 2015. Uh, you're in the top prospect tournament. Now, just being in the tournament is, is you know, no pun intended, is an honor. What were your thoughts heading into that? I mean, knowing that, you know, Matt Taven had, had won it before and, and uh, uh, you know, Adam Cole and Dalton Castle and these guys had been in it before. What, what were your thoughts at that point? Oh, I, I was so excited. I was super nervous too, like, that was, was kind of like, you know, I guess I've had matches on Ring of Honor before that, but to me that felt like the proper introduction. Like, you know, it's, hey, now he's here. We're putting him in the top prospect tournament. There's only – you only get one chance to do that. So it's like this is a – I knew it was a big chance, and I knew I had a lot, of, a lot of names I had to live up to because this tournament was a prestigious tournament. And it was like – it's probably still one of the favorite – most favorite wrestling nights of my life. It was at the, the 2300 arena, the ECW arena, and it was filmed. Um, the semifinals and the finals were filmed in the same night. So I remember having a match, maybe waiting 40 minutes and then having another, the next one. And uh, it was a lot that night, but it felt like validation to me because never did I have like, you know, uh, a crowd really care and really be invested. And by the end of the night, the, the final match, they were, they were invested. We had them at the high point. We went home. And to me, that's like, mwah, chef's kiss. Like, I'm very proud of the matches I've had against Dijak, Bruiser throughout that tournament. And just being, if I envisioned myself as a wrestler, that's what I would see. And I got to make that vision a reality. Even if it was just through that night, through that tournament, it was awesome. I loved it. And I'll cherish that forever. Well, you use the word validation. I think that's a great word because it's one thing to just be in the top prospect tournament. As I said, that's an honor in itself, but uh, to get to the finals, I mean that, you know, like that doesn't just happen to anybody. Uh, you beat beer city bruiser in the semifinals and you work die Jack Donovan die Jack in the finals. When you found out that you're not just in this thing, but you're in it till the end. Um, 
did you see that as a turning point for you in a sense? Uh, I did. I looked at it as, okay, they have some faith in me. And now I really have to, you know, try to knock this out of the park. I think um, as a wrestler, you know, especially knowing what I know now, I don't think I had a very developed character developed or I didn't even know who I was really. I just knew that I was a little scrappy underdog and that's, I would try to fight guys and that's all, that's all, you know, I would kind of focus on. So I think like looking back, there's, I wish I had a little more uh, commanding traits or if I, if I, put more effort into who I was at the time. But for me, it was just real. I was, you know, I was Will Ferrara and I was fighting for my life. And that's what it was. You know, I was fighting for a job. And, you know, the top pro- top prospect tournament is like, uh, you've seen a lot of people wrestle in it and then have careers in Ring of Honor. And then you've seen the other half of people that show up in it and then you don't see them again. And I was just trying to do everything in my power to be one of those guys that stuck around. So just knock on wood, I'm glad I got to do that. Not not long after you and uh, and Cheeseburger uh, worked together as as a tag team, were you guys friends before you were tag partners? Oh yeah, Cheeseburger, one of my best friends, and I think our partnership kind of happened because of our friendship. I think there was um there was a match where the cabinet uh, interrupted a match me versus Cheeseburger, and it turned into an impromptu tag match of me, Cheeseburger, and Moose against the cabinet of Rhett. Kenny and Caprice and uh, I remember thinking uh, me and Berger maybe we did a few double teams in that match or we kind of gelled well in that match and then powers that be like hey maybe we try these guys as a tag team and I, I honestly had a lot of fun with it I really love teaming with him it's someone that I train with all the time that he knew what I wanted to do I knew what he wanted to do and we worked together so it was a lot of fun of course, when the time came, uh, you know, all good things must come to an end. The time came for you and Cheeseburger to go your separate ways. Uh, there was a heel turn for Will. Will Farrar turned on Cheeseburger. Um, was working heel, was that your idea? Was it something that you wanted to do? Uh, and ha- had you done it before at the indie level, before you got to Ring of Honor? It's definitely something I wanted to do. I remember I was uh... – frustrated at the time teaming with cheeseburger and not, not, not anything against him. I think it's just like, everyone wants more. We're hungry. And if you feel stuck at a certain part of the card, it's going to be hard not to feel frustrated, especially when you're so engulfed by it. And I remember I got the call and telling me, Hey, we're thinking of doing this with you. And it was like a spark of motivation. I was like, okay, here's something I bite my, my teeth into and I'll make really good. And that, that little run I had against cheeseburger, uh, it was like, a few matches when before the dogs, I was really big fan of the heel work. There's the match I had with Cheeseburger in Atlanta that even watching back now, I'm a fan of just telling a story. I think that's my the thing I really love to do as a in wrestling is just tell stories and use that in the matches. And I think as a heel, it's so much easier to do that when you dictate the pace and when you like, you know, you do everything you can to have the payoffs with the baby. Like that's my favorite thing. I would be a heel wrestling a strong baby face. 10 out of 10 nights, and it would be my favorite. So then eventually you, you do this tag team with Rhett as, as the dogs. Uh, and Rhett talked about it some. I don't know. You know, you probably heard it when he was on the show and said that, uh, I guess, was it Grizzly Redwood was a guy that he used to sort of, uh, I don't know if pick one was the right word, but uh, give a hard time to. And that after he left, you kind of filled that role uh, backstage. Is that how you remember it? 
Oh, it's very uh, – the first time I showed up to do ring crew, I was, think it was actually one of Grizzlies last weekend's. I remember doing the zip ties along the guardrail. We just got to – you got to zip tie those metal signs on the guardrail. And Rhett, there were pads on the, the fan side of the guardrail. Uh, Rhett comes up from behind me and just like as if it was a, a, a battle royal, he threw me over the guardrail onto the pads. <laughs> like, yeah, welcome to the recruit, little Willie. And that's, you know legitimately how it started and it only you know escalated from there <laughs> so what was that experience like of teaming with him it seemed like you guys uh had a lot of fun with the dogs i had a lot of fun and i was in the ring and out of the ring i think that was like just it was us having fun we were we bonded because of all the stuff we've been through together and you know uh, i think Looking back retrospectively, I think that we just kind of packed so much into the idea of the dogs. It was this like dynamic that we had to get across or that we're trying to get across our natural dynamic of him just breaking my balls all the time, essentially. Uh, but then coming to, to balance that and at the same time to try to look at, uh, to look like a cohesive tag team and an effective tag team, I think it was very, very difficult. And it kind of, you know, some things caught on, some things didn't, but and, you know, in the long run, we had a great time. I'm proud of some of the matches we've had. And just, like, it was cool to to be in a team with your friend. After doing it with Berger and now doing it with Rhett, how different that they were, it was cool to show that kind of versatility. And I love, you know, I'm, I love tag team wrestling, to be honest. Well, I thought you were you guys were doing some creative stuff. And, and uh, that is another thing that we, we talked about with Rhett was, uh, you know, you, you guys didn't like it. You know, the, the story was that you didn't really like Rhett. And, and he would, uh, you know, sort of pick on you in the ring or whatever. And you guys had these cool, like, double-team moves, but it was you basically wanting to go after Rhett, and Rhett turns it into an offensive move, kind of using you and your, <laughs> your anger towards him, which I thought was, like, I don't think anybody else was doing anything like that. Yeah, so that was, that was really cool to just be doing something different. Like, that's, uh, I guess, what I try to – tell the students at the dojo and just try to find is like, if you could find ways to make yourself different and you stand out and that's great. That's what you need to do. If you do the same thing people seen and you don't do it as good, you're not going to excel. I can't remember. So re refresh my memory on this. Why did the dogs eventually uh, break up? I know you kind of disappeared off the scene and there was a um, Rhett was, was on social media. Well, you know, where's little Willie? Why did you guys stop teaming? I don't recall. Yeah, um, essentially I wrestled Cheeseburger in a fight without honor uh, in Philly. And that was the last taping I did. Maybe that was August 2018. And uh, that was the last match I had in the Ring of Honor. I, I think there might have been a plan for me to come back and to do the dogs again and maybe be a little more serious. And I guess just things never really came through at the same time. That's when the dojo was opening up and I became like a trainer and I started learning a lot more behind the scenes stuff. And I guess I kind of just uh, saw a fork in the road, a fork in the road. My New York accent's coming out there. I apologize. Uh, a fork in the road where I could either, you know, try to wrestle again or I could try to do this new role as a coach, as a producer. And that's what I went for. So I don't think that there was any, uh, ill will between me and Rhett doing the tag team. It was just, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. I saw that we kept getting a lot of new talent. There was a lot of new talent coming in. Uh, and I felt like it would have been the better move for me to, to learn more about wrestling and to fill this role that we needed as a company. 
than to try to fight for a spot against all these top tier guys when I don't think I was, um, you know, as talented. I'll say it like, you know, I, I believe in myself as a wrestler, but as a full package, as a character and as like, uh, you know, someone that I would want to watch, I wouldn't put myself in front of some of these guys and that's okay. And I'm okay accepting that. So I made the choice that was right for me. Well, I mean, that's incredible to be, to be able to be that honest with yourself, I think is, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't look at it that way. So I think that's, it's great that you did. I don't, I don't know that everyone would, would agree with you really. I think, um, you know, I think there's a place for everybody on the roster and I think there, you know, certainly was a, was a place for you. And I think there may have been talks of, uh, you know, repackaging or something like that. Uh, but then the opportunity, as you said, came along to maybe go, go a different way. I was just hoping there was going to be a, a payoff storyline wise to where's little Willie, because I thought there were some possibilities there. I don't, do you remember, I don't know if you watched WCW back in the day. You probably weren't a fan yet. Never mind. You're too young. It was a time where Mick Foley disappeared and they had to go find him. And uh, I'm, this, this doesn't ring a bell at all to you, does it? I don't, I don't recall. Uh, yeah. this, I was in the, this was in the, I think this was in the mid nineties. You can look it up on YouTube. I'll definitely uh, look into it retrospectively. I love watching all this old uh, wrestling. Like it's, there's a funny thing. I'm almost afraid to say it because it would show my age, <laughs> but I remember WrestleMania 18 was the first time I actually saw Hulk Hogan wrestle live. I've only watched WWE from like 2000 until 2002. So that was all I've seen in wrestling. I remember as a kid, Watching him hit the rock with a leg drop, I was like, oh, that's a lame finisher move. What the hell is this guy doing? I had no idea. And, you know, obviously learning about the history later on, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. This is awesome. But, yeah, at the time, I was just a dumb little kid. Wow. You're, it, it does go to show how young you are. Well, I, it, it makes me feel really old that that's the first time you saw Hulk Hogan was – yeah, you missed the Hulkamania. Not only did you miss the Hulkamania era, you missed his NWO era, Hollywood. Yeah, Hogan. I missed the, I missed all the cool stuff. You know, I had to find out about all this uh, years back. You know, like I guess NWO. The only thing I saw at the time was like through the video games. Maybe I didn't really watch WCW. It would only be like play the game at the friend's house. And then when I guess I got old enough to discover, oh, I could change. I you know do this on my own. WCW was gone. That's right. There are a lot of people that are going to be mad at me now. Sorry. <laughs> well, if you ever get a chance, go back and uh, they're probably on YouTube. I don't know. Mick Foley, like, I think Vader dropped him on his head outside the ring. And they did a storyline where Mick, uh, he was Cactus Jack at the time. He wasn't Mick Foley. He was Cactus Jack. And Mick, like, uh, lost his memory. And then they did these skits where they had, like, this investigative reporter. They were really cheesy, but you know, good, so bad they're good. You know what I mean? That's my and, favorite. Uh, and they tried to find him, and he was, like, living this life. He was, like, uh, working on the docks or something somewhere with, like, uh, shacked up with a new woman, like, left. He didn't know who he was. And, uh, yeah, I think it came from the mind of, of, of the great American dream, Dusty Rhodes. I think he was booking that at the time. And, uh, you know, pe old people like me look back on it fondly. So I think that's where we could have gone with Where's Little Willie? Like you could have had like lost your mind, lost your memory and, and been, you know, working on the docks or something somewhere. And we had to, hey, find it's never too late. You know, if uh, little Willie ever comes back, I think we found the perfect segue to get him there.
tell you what, I've always wanted to do another amnesia angle. I, when I was working for WWE, I pitched it a couple times, an amnesia angle. We never did it. Maybe there's a reason for that. I don't know. Saving um, it for the right time. Saving it for the right time. Yeah, exactly. Um, last thing I want to ask you before we take our, our final break and uh, come back with 10 questions is, uh, is obviously being a New York guy, working Madison Square Garden. Uh, that had to be, I mean, obviously working the garden for any anybody in this business is a big deal. Was it a bigger deal because of, uh, you know, where you grew up? Oh, yeah. To me, it was, it's like the ultimate dream. I didn't even have that listed as a goal because I didn't think it was realistic. You know, it would just seem so like, oh, that would be great, but there's no way we're ever going to do that. And just like the pieces kind of fell uh, as they did. And I'm just incredibly grateful to say that, yeah, I wrestled in Madison Square Garden. You know, um, one of the first shows I ever seen live was a Raw from Madison Square Garden. I went to WrestleMania 20 live as a fan. I remember my dad getting tickets and then just being full circle, being able to give my parents tickets, my close friends, and they got to sit in the garden and watch me wrestle. It's great. You know, like it, uh, as much as I love wrestling and as much as I would like to wrestle again, if I never got the chance to put uh, my boots on, I'll always be able to say I wrestled at the garden. And to me, that means the world. Yeah, that's definitely uh, that. That'd be the highlight, I think, of anyone's one of the highlights of anyone's career, to be able to walk out uh, down the aisle in front of a sold-out crowd at Madison Square Garden. That is that's pretty cool, no doubt about it. All right, well, we're gonna take our final break, and then when we come back, we're gonna play ten questions with Will Ferrara. How do I watch ROH TV? Start by visiting ROHWrestling.com and using our zip code lookup tool to find your local listings. We aren't in your area? Don't worry. You can catch us on digital channels such as Stadium and Stir City as well as Fight.TV. ROH TV also airs every Monday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on Best on the Planet, our newly launched 24-7 streaming channel, which is available on Stir and Plex. The newest episode of ROH TV is always free on ROHWrestling.com and the Ring of Honor app. Ring of Honor has never been easier to watch. All right, we are back on the ROH Strong Podcast. My guest is Will Ferrara. Will, are you ready to play 10 questions? Oh, I'm ready. And it is now time for 10 Questions with Kevin. All right, question number one. Uh, it's funny, we went to the last break talking about MSG, which is probably on, was on your bucket list. What's something else that's on your bucket list? Hmm. Um, I'd actually say to travel a lot more. You know, I never really thought about traveling. And then the world closed down and I realized like, oh, wow. Sometimes if they, once they take it away from you, it seems like a lot, uh, a lot more appealing, you know? So I would like to travel more for the sake of enjoyment. You know, I've been a lot, all over the world through wrestling and I appreciate that. But I'd like to be across the world in some vacation mode too. Okay. Question number two, what's a subject you'd like to know more about? I would say music. Uh, I'm a big fan of listening to music. I would like to be able to play music, uh, to learn how to write music. You know, it's, it's a big escape. Uh, and yeah, if I, if I try now, I feel like I, I'm a little late in the game. I guess you're never too late to learn something new. But uh, yeah, I would like to just know more about music. I'm going to jump ahead here. I had this a little uh, lower down on the list, but I'm going to move it up since you mentioned music. So question number three, what's the first concert that you ever attended? Ooh. Hmm. 
I think my dad took me, uh, he would take me upstate New York every every summer, both my parents. And uh, he got tickets to a Santana concert, I think. So as a kid, I saw Santana, but by myself, uh, first uh, band I saw was The Offspring. I saw them uh, in New York. It was cool. Okay, yeah, that'd be a good show. What, didn't they do the? Uh, didn't, never mind. I'm, I was gonna. I was gonna make a reference, and you, you wouldn't know. I was gonna say, didn't they do Ravens' theme song? Well, they did. Uh, you gotta keep them separated. Okay, so you do sure. remember that? I've learned a few things in retrospect, but uh, yeah, <laughs> they were cool. All right, question number four: What's something that's popular that you don't see the appeal of? I'd probably say social media. Just as a whole, like I think there are times where I was really obsessed with it and like checking the phone all the time. But I guess I'm at the stage of my life now where I find so much more enjoyment just experiencing uh, what I'm doing as opposed to like uh, finding the coolest and best way to share to the world what I'm doing. And yeah, it's my happiness has gone up as a correlation between my social media use, uh, use going down. So I'll say that. I'm in complete agreement with you on that. I, I, that's uh, it's one of my New Year's resolutions is to, is to keep uh, keep downsizing my social media. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but yeah, it definitely improves, at least for me, improves my mental health. All right, question number five. Who is your celebrity crush? Oh, I might get heat from the, from the girl if I answer this question. So I'll just say The Rock because he's a very... <laughs> Very uh, strong and charismatic individual. Okay. Yeah, that's a safe answer. That's that's kind of a coward answer, but I, I understand. Coward you. And, hey, yeah, mm-hmm. their hell has no fury. Like oh, I got scoring. it. I got you. And who doesn't think The Rock's a good-looking man? I'm a, I think we can all admit that. All right, I, think, I think I could, I'm safe to say. He is, I'm comfortable saying that. Me too. <laughs> Me too. All right, question number six. If you could have a conversation with any person, alive or dead, uh, who would that be? Well, it's a hard one. I actually, I did a little cheating. I had to think about the answer to this question going in because I, I had a feeling it might come up. But the person I, I guess decided on was Pat Patterson. Uh, he's a great wrestling mind, and I think a lot of people refer to him as maybe the best Finnish guy of all time. Yeah. So I would like to pick his brain and like you know learn more about that and tell him stories and build into finish. You know, that's I love just talking wrestling, and if I could learn from a mind that has produced some of the you know best finishes of all time then please i'll tell you that is a great answer because i got to spend a little bit of time around pat in uh in wwe pat would sit in on production meetings from time to time and uh would have suggestions for things and and there were times sometimes backstage where pat would just kind of hold court you know with a few of the writers or whatever and and just you know to sit back and listen to pat with whether it was creative ideas or whether it was just pat telling stories uh was great so yeah that's a great answer all right question number seven uh this is about pets are you a dog person a cat person both or neither i'm definitely a dog person not just because of my former team with rep uh i just love dogs i think they're like you know you come home and a dog's super happy to see you and you'll play with it but then you come home the cat's like it's almost like a roommate and he's annoyed that you're home now you know i think uh I look at it as, oh, well, you know, you don't have to walk cats. They have the litter box. They can kind of keep to themselves. But, you know, I just love dogs. They're dopey. They're fun. And uh, that's it. Yeah. The bonding with the dog is uh, 
my experience has been much better than uh, trying to bond with a cat because they just don't care. <laughs> they, they could not be bothered. No. All right. Question number eight. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Is there something you enjoy that maybe you wouldn't want to admit to because you'd be embarrassed? Well, maybe ice cream. I'm just, it's, it would be embarrassed to admit how often I eat ice cream. I love it a lot. And like, you know, I'm surprised that I'm not, uh, you know, I'm still able to move around for how much ice cream I've been eating. You know, uh, I know Rhett's probably listening to this. He'd shake his, I had to hide so many of the diet things when we we're on the road together. And uh, yeah, you know, I like to preach, yeah, eat healthy and diet is really important. But then I'm the same guy that's, that eats like a pint of ice cream at a time. I love it so much. Well, you didn't do it on purpose, but you just kind of ruined question nine, which was going to be, what is your favorite cheat food? So we know that it's uh, it's ice cream. So we'll throw wow. that question out. But I'm prepared for uh, situations like this. Um, I have another question here, which is, if you weren't a professional wrestler or working in this business, what do you think you would have uh, you'd be doing for a living? What, what what would you have pursued instead of wrestling? Hmm. Very good question. Um, I think I would have probably pursued something. Uh, related to video editing or the technical part of like Hollywood TV shows I could see myself working on a show doing like you know uh, technical side I just always liked uh, computers I always liked video games growing up so I could see myself just like uh, having something that has to do with technology or you know uh, editing something of that sort okay all right we've come to the final question question number 10 and this is the first time I've ever asked this question on 10 questions so you're the guinea pig. Uh-oh. Have you ever had, I think it's the first time, have you ever had a paranormal experience? Ooh. Well, I don't, I'm not sure if you could call it paranormal, but I've had a bat that showed up in my house before, and I had to get rid of the bat. That was very scary. You know, I guess you wouldn't think like, oh, there's a little bat at the time, but I had home one day from a concert, and uh, I'm taking off my shoes, and then I look up, and a bat is flying around. It's a fan. And I never like uh, yelled and fell to the floor in fear before, but that bat got me. How, how did you get it out of the house? I had to, a friend of mine, she had to chase it with a broom, uh, knocked it down. I kind of uh, strapped it in this like box, almost like a tin if you were to put like, a, if you, your kids have toys and you have the little bin that you put the toys in, I trapped it in the bin and I had to go out on my balcony and let it free and run back inside. It was terrifying. So no ghosts, but a, a real life bat. That I don't want to, you know, I like Batman. I don't like bats. <laughs> All right, so be honest now. How big was the bat? Was it small? I mean, it was, if, if there was a, a Rhett Titus bat, he'd probably call that bat Little Bat. So, yes, <laughs> it was pretty small. <laughs> All right, well, I wouldn't say that's a paranormal experience because bats are, are real. Uh, that's normal, not paranormal. <laughs> but uh okay i thought maybe yeah, yeah. would have happened uh at the, you went to, you went with everybody to the zach bagans haunted museum didn't you i did and nothing uh, happened in there no, nothing out of the ordinary at least okay. like you know at least to me i felt like the bat just the, the timing and you know in my mind i'm gonna get bit by this and turn into a vampire so maybe that's why i, I kind of geared down the paranormal route but okay. all right well you know what i, I I gotta say, if I came home and and uh, found a bat flying around, I'd probably be taken aback myself. I, I can understand. I don't, nothing wrong with that. I, I think we'd oh. all be a little put off. 
yeah, one of those things where I guess you're never really sure how you're going to react until it happens. Exactly. Well, because you didn't see it coming. So none of us like to be surprised like that. Okay, gotcha. All right. Well, before I let you go, I just have to ask you, uh, which I ask everyone, which is their social media if they want to give out the information. But I feel a little weird asking you that since we've already determined that you're not a big fan. I mean, are, are you on there? Do you want people to follow you or, or no? Uh, I guess if they do anything, you could at Will Ferrara on Twitter. If I, if I participate on social media, I'm probably doing the Watch ROH watch parties every Monday. So I like doing that. Uh, and otherwise, you know, I'm not really on too much. If okay. people want to find me on anything, I say Twitter would be the, the best, best one. All right. Fair enough. Well, Will, I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, it was great to talk to you. I think a lot of people didn't know exactly you know, what you did behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, I think it was a, it's fascinating to talk to somebody as they're transitioning into a new role. And I think you do have, you know, just because you're 29 years old doesn't mean you don't have a wealth of knowledge and a lot of experience to impart to, uh, to uh, our, our dojo students. So I think, uh, I think it's, it's good for them. And, uh, and I'm glad that you're happy in what you're doing. Thank you very much, Kevin. I had a great time and I appreciate you having me. Awesome. Well, I want to thank everybody out there as well for listening. And remember, a new episode of the ROH Strong Podcast drops every Monday morning on ROHWrestling.com and most podcast platforms. Keep it locked on to ROHWrestling.com and ROH's social media channels. That's at Ring of Honor on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook.com slash Ring of Honor for news regarding upcoming episodes. Until next time, this is Kevin X saying, stay safe. And let's all be ROH strong.